tonight. We begin in Job chapter 25, and we hope to complete the next four chapters, chapters 25, 26, 27, and 28. It's not as big as it sounds, and it's important for us to understand that tonight we're going to transition into a new section into the book of Job. Now, those who have been with us from the beginning, this is going to be familiar with you, but I think it's sort of good for us to lay out at the beginning of each study just sort of a brief summary of the book of Job. Job was this amazingly righteous and upright man that the Bible specifically calls him a blameless and upright man. And that was not only the opinion of the anonymous author of the book of Job, But we know from Job chapter 1, verse 8, that it was the opinion of God in heaven of Job. God himself said that Job was a blameless and upright man. And we cannot forget that through the entire book. We know it. God knows it. I'll even say that Satan knew it. But Job's friends did not know it. And Job, he knew it in his conscience, but it seemed not to be true in his experience. Because what happened to this blameless and upright man? Well, terrible catastrophe rained down into his life. In one afternoon, he lost all 10 of his adult children. In one afternoon, he lost all of his wealth. In that day, wealth was measured in how many servants you had and in how much livestock, you know, sheep and goats and cattle you had. And Job was an incredibly wealthy man and he lost it all in one afternoon. Now, why did he lose it? He lost it on a human level, on a, on, a, on a eyesight level, if we want to say that. He lost it because a great storm came and flattened the house where all ten of his children were. On a human level, we would say it's because uh, raiders and plunderers came in and, and stole uh, Job's livestock and, and, and killed many of his servants. On a human level, we would also say that it happened because a fire fell down from the sky and consumed whatever remained of Job's livestock and Job's servants. But we know from Job chapters 1 and 2 that there was a heavenly reality behind what the eye could see. And behind that curtain that separates heaven from earth, we know that there was a competition, a, a battle, a, a wager, some, some sort of a fight going on between God and Satan because Satan insisted that all Job's blessings made him serve God for what you might call a mercenary purpose. All he cared about was the blessings God gave him, not God himself. And Satan's contention was, God, if you allow me to take away the blessings, Job will curse you. God said, no, not my servant Job. Go ahead, Satan. You can afflict him this way. And Satan did. And when Job, instead of cursing the name of God, when Job blessed the name of the Lord, well, Satan was proved to be a liar once again, and God was proved once again to be true. But then Satan said, well, let me increase the wager, so to speak. Let me, let me tell you that the problem with Job is that you haven't afflicted his body. Doesn't matter if you take away his children. Doesn't matter if you take away his wealth. Job is so selfish that as long as it doesn't touch him physically, he doesn't care. So then God allowed Satan to afflict Job in his body. And he was covered for months with a painful, agonizing skin condition that produced all sorts of physical symptoms and ailments with him. And in the midst of all this agony, uh, his wife cursed him. His friends came to comfort him. But later on in the discussion that came out of all of this between Job and his friends, his friends insisted that all this calamity came upon Job because he was a sinner. And not just any particular sinner, but he was a 
especially unique sinner who is especially deserving of this judgment from God. Job, knowing his own conscience, insisted that he was not. And Job agonized. He agonized over many things. He did not seem to agonize very much over losing all of his wealth. He did not seem to agonize very much over losing his children even. What distressed Job most of all was in the midst of this trial, not just the experience of the trial, but in the weeks that followed it, when he's undergoing this debate between himself and his friends, what really upset Job most of all was the feeling that God was far from him. Because Job was a man who had enjoyed incredibly intense fellowship with God. And now that sense of fellowship was broken. He felt that God was far distant from him, that God was unreachable, or worse yet, he felt that God was against him. And it was out of this agony that Job goes back and forth, arguing with his friends, his friends trying with all of their persuasive power to convince Job that he's a sinner who needs to repent And if he would only repent, then things would come right in his life again. But Job is insisting, no, I'm not a particular sinner. You guys don't know what you're talking about. Now, Job was right. But yet, his friends kept evaluating him according to what we might consider to be the standard way that we would look at things. And so the debate went on, right? There was a first round. Job's three friends were named Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Each one of them would speak, and then Job would respond to each one. It went through one round, then it went through another round, and then now we're in the third round. We left it off last week in the third round of discussions between Job and his friends. As a matter of fact, in the third round, just like in the second round, just like in the first round, Eliphaz spoke first, and then Job replied to him. Now, in the third round, Bildad is going to speak. But I just want you to take a very quick look at chapter 25 right now, and notice how short it is. Right? Do you see that? Chapter 25 is only six verses long. And at the end of chapter 25, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar are done speaking. They're finished. They don't have anything more to say. Now, please, we're not done with the book of Job yet. Not by any means. Are are you getting kind of tired of this discussion between the friends? Is it sort of wearing you out? Are you kind of like, wow, this is like a movie that will never end? You know, this is like a book that you just wish it would get to the conclusion. Well, good. You should feel like that. I think that that's how God wants you to feel in the book of Job. He wants you to feel exhausted by human attempts to understand this predicament. Because that's exactly what God wanted all these human participants to feel. So now... Uh, Bildad is going to speak in the third round here. Here he goes. Then Bildad the Shuahite answered and said, now, uh, we, we need to acknowledge something here. This last speech of Bildad is very short. And because this last speech of Bildad is very short, and because there are some textual difficulties in chapter 24 in the preceding passage, There are some scholars who want to say, well, some of chapter 24 doesn't belong to Job. It belongs to to Bildad or maybe even Zophar instead, and they want to switch things around. Listen, I could get into the details of the argument with you. Let me just say this much. I've researched the arguments carefully enough. I'm willing to keep the text as it stands. 
I recognize that there's some difficulties in here. You scratch your head and say, well, why did Job say what he said in chapter 24? And, and why is Bildad's speech so short? And why didn't Zophar speak a third time? And, you know, you start trying to figure all those things out. And, and I agree, there's some difficulties with keeping the text as it is, but I have to say, any of the suggested solutions, in my mind, cause far greater problems than we have just here in the text as it is. So here, Bildad the Shuahite answered and said, and look at his answer again, it fits in very well with what the three friends have said before. Verse 2, dominion and fear belong to him. He makes peace in his high places. Is there any number to his armies? Upon whom does his light not rise? Now, again, Bildad has just finished listening to Job give another one of his defensive speeches in Job chapter 24. And now in response to it, in exasperation, Bildad can only repeat what has already been agreed to by Job and the three friends already. Listen, did did you read what, what Bildad just said right there? Would Job disagree with that? Would Job stand to his feet and say, I object. Dominion and fear do not belong to God. Of course not. He's just repeating things that are already agreed upon by everybody. And this gives us a feel with what I think God wants us to feel of the book of Job at this point. The arguments are exhausted. There's nothing new to say. All they're doing is repeating themselves. It's about time for this aspect of the book of Job to come to an end. But in verse 3, notice what Bildad said. He said, is there any number to his armies? Bildad also wanted Job to know that God was an impossible foe to face, right? If you understand how mighty God is and how many armies God has, that's a way of saying you better not oppose God. He'll beat you every time. There was a play on Broadway many years ago, and then it went out to other theaters, other places. I don't know anything about the play. I don't know if it's a good play or a bad play. I just know the title of the play. And the title of the play is great. The title of the play is this. Your arms are too short to box with God. Now, you know what? I like that, right? Because it's really true. You could put your boxing gloves on and go up to God and say, okay, God, I'm going to box with you. But you know what? His arms are so much longer, he can punch you all day long and you can't even lay a glove on him. Your arms are too short to box with God. Isn't that what Bildad's saying to Job? He's saying, listen, is there any number to his armies? Verse 3, upon whom his light does not rise. Job, you should simply surrender to this great God who is mighty in armies. And Job's just trying to say, I'm trying to surrender to God. But where is he? God won't connect with me. That's the problem. Well, Bildad's not finished here. Verse 4. How then can man be righteous before God? Or how can he be pure who is born of a woman? Now again, Bildad is stating matters that are not in dispute. We've already been over this ground. Job said the same thing almost exactly in Job chapter 9, verse 2, in response to Bildad's first speech. It's like this has gone on so long and it's been so intense that the guys can't even remember what they have said or what the other guy has said. He goes on, he says in verse 4, or how can he be pure who is born of a woman? I think that the purpose of this question is to cause Job to understand, Job, you're a sinner just like all of us. Now, you can imagine how frustrating this would be for Job's friends. They kept saying, Job, all this has come upon you because you're a particularly bad sinner. Job said, no, I'm not. 
And then the Job's, Job's friend said, well, don't you think you're a sinner of all at all? Listen, everybody who's born of a woman is a sinner. Job would agree to that. Job never claimed to be sinlessly perfect. Never. But he insisted, rightly so, that his calamity, his catastrophe, had not come upon him in life because of some particular sin. Verse 5. Even if the moon does not shine and the stars are not pure in his sight, how much less man who is a maggot and a son of man who is a worm. So Bildad first lifts up his eyes to the heavens and he sees the stars and he sees the moon, right? He sees all of that. And then what does he say? When Bildad looks up his eyes to the heavens and sees the moon and the stars, he says, Job, you don't measure up to that. You're not as glorious. Even the moon and the stars don't glorify God the way that they should. Even they aren't pure in God's sight. And you are so much less than the moon and the stars. And then what does he do? He shifts his eyes from looking up to the heavens. And then he looks down to the ground, right? What does he see? He sees the worm and the maggot. And he says, listen, if the moon and the stars can't reflect the glory of God as they should, then it stands to reason that man cannot either. Man is like a worm or a maggot. Now, again, I think Bildad's final argument here is based upon a misunderstanding of what Job previously said. Bildad seemed to think that Job wanted to convince God that God was wrong. And therefore, Bildad wanted to emphasize the proper relationship between man and God. But Job, remember, you're not God. God is God and you're not him. But it's like, well, we already understand this. You, you should just take it as it is. Now, what's very interesting about this is you must admit that at this point, Bildad is sitting in judgment of Job, right? Now, Job, you're not doing right. You're not seeing God, right? You need to understand that you're just a maggot. Okay, let's say that he is just a maggot. Bildad, what are you? Well, you're a maggot also. Here's one maggot judging another maggot. If what he says about human nature is correct, he has no place to judge Job whatsoever. But I just want you to catch a feel for this. When you come to the end of chapter 25 here at verse 6, let me just read this last verse to you. This is the last word from either Eliphaz, Bildad, or Zophar. Ready? Here's the last word. How much less man who is a maggot and the son of man who is a worm. Isn't that an inspiring note to end the, the discussion on? What's terrible, isn't it? It just goes to show you how low it is sunk between these three friends. You see, it's sort of an irony here. It ends on a disgusting and hopeless note, this long, drawn-out controversy between Bildad, Zophar, and Eliphaz, and then with Job on the other side. So now, that's the last we hear of these three friends. Now, what we have in front of us is very interesting. We have a section here from Job chapter 26 up through Job chapter 31, where Job is going to give a long speech. It seems like he gave a few pauses in between, but he's going to give a long speech. First, he's going to answer Bildad. Then he's going to give some observations on wisdom in general. He's going to give some observations on the, the, the nature of the world. And then finally, in Job chapter 31, Job is going to defend his own righteousness. We'll take a look at that next week when we're together. But then what's really interesting is we don't hear any more from Eliphaz, Bildad, or Zophar. But starting with Job chapter 32, a whole new guy comes on the scene. 
Elihu. And Elihu will speak for chapter 32, chapter 33, chapter 34, chapter 35, chapter 36, chapter 37, until we all just wish that Elihu would shut up. You'll see when we get to that, okay? And then finally, after Elihu is done, and all of human wisdom and analysis is exhausted, then God will come upon the scene. So I just wanted to say that so that you do not develop a false expectation. You might be saying, whew, this is the last of Job's friends. Well, almost, because the three friends are finally quiet, right? No more from Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. However, one new guy is going to come on, and he's going to drone on and on, chapter after chapter. But we don't have to worry about that for a couple of weeks. Now let's get in and start getting Job's reply to Bildad in Job chapter 26. Here he's going to begin, verse 1. But Job answered and said, How have you helped him who is without power? How have you saved the arm that has no strength? I see here Job is beginning a long discourse, first going to answer the brief speech of Bildad. And now he's pointing his finger at Bildad, so to speak, saying, Listen, how have you helped him who is without power? Job considered all the wisdom from Bildad, and I'm sure he had in his mind also Eliphaz and Zophar, and he said, listen, where is the help in what you guys are saying? Where is the strength in what you guys are saying? You talk, 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 but who are you helping? You see, at the end of it all, Job's friends got to the point where they were so concerned about being right that they forgot to be concerned about helping Job. Watch for that. Did you know, and you'll know this, I think you learned this in married life, I know that I have, in married life as well as other relationships, you can be so right that you're wrong. And that's how it was with Job's friends. Now, I got to say, they actually were not right. They were right in the general principle, but not in the specific application to Job. But they were so insistent on being proved right and having Job admit that they were right that they ended up not helping him at all. And that's what Job's trying to expose here in the first two verses. But now we move to verse 3, where he says, How have you counseled the one who has no wisdom? And how have you declared sound advice to many? And to whom have you uttered words? And whose spirit came from you? Now again, Job made these statements broad enough to include not only himself, but, but also anyone else that Bildad or the others failed to help. You know, not only have you guys not helped me, but I don't know if you've helped anybody. I don't know if you helped the, the poor widow whose husband died a couple years ago. I, I don't know if you helped the little orphan boy down the street. Who have you been helping at all? And then he says in verse 4, And to whom have you uttered words? Job wondered who else had been damaged by the insensitivity and the misapplied wisdom of the friends. But did you notice what else he said in verse 4? It's very revealing. In verse 4 he says this, Whose spirit came from you? Now, what's very interesting about that is in the very first speech of Eliphaz, in Job chapter 4, Eliphaz said that a mysterious spirit came to him and revealed to him the principles that he was going to share with Job. And the message from this shadowy spirit began like this, Job chapter 4, verse 17. Can a mortal be more righteous than his God? That's the first thing that the shadowy spirit said to Eliphaz when the friends first started speaking. Well, Bildad repeated the same idea 
in Job chapter 25, verse 4, as well as other recycled arguments in that brief chapter. Therefore, Job wanted to know from Bildad, whose spirit came from you? Listen, Eliphaz said that he received this from some mysterious spirit. Well, where did you get this great wisdom, Bildad? Or I kind of like it as the New International Version has it. Whose spirit spoke from your mouth is what Job said. See, it's kind of like this. It's like his friends are like a broken record. The first words and the last words of Job's friends are always the same. The, the, the first words of Eliphaz and the last words of Bildad. It's all the same throughout, and Job is pointing this out. And then now, starting at chapter 26, verse 5, Job will begin to praise God. And this is why he's doing it. It, it might sound strange to you that right in the midst of this, he's going to start saying how great God is. But it's very important, actually. Because Bildad's argument is based on the idea that Job doesn't seem to know God very well, right? Job, you're not in touch with who God is and how great he is. And Job is going to explain to his friends, listen, guys, I know how great God is even better than you do. And so he's going to explain it now, starting here at verse 5. Listen, it's this beautiful passage. The dead tremble, those under the waters and those inhabiting them. Sheol is naked before him and destruction has no covering. He stretches out the north over empty space. He hangs the earth on nothing. He binds up the water in his thick clouds, yet the clouds are not broken under it. He covers the face of his throne and spreads his cloud over it. He drew a circular horizon on the face of the waters at the boundary of light and darkness. The pillars of heaven tremble and are astonished at his rebuke. He stirs up the sea with his power, and by his understanding he breaks up the storm. By his spirit he adorned the heavens. His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. Now if you go back to verse 5, you see this here, and the first thing Job says is, the dead tremble those under the waters and those inhabiting them. It's very interesting. He seems to speak about dead people being under the waters. And many suggestions have been offered for the identity of these watery dead people that Job mentions there in chapter 26, verse 5. Some people think that Job believed that Sheol, the place of the dead, you know, the world beyond, was located under the waters or that it was a watery abyss. Other people think that it's just a poetical way of describing those people who were in the lowest or the deepest pit. Some people, and I don't agree with this at all, believe that those inhabiting the waters are actually fishes and sea creatures. If you were to ask me what Job is considering here, I think that Job is actually simply giving a non-technical and poetic description of the uncertainty, of the darkness, and of the gloom of the world beyond. He used a very similar sort of imagery back in Job chapter 10. Let me read to you Job chapter 10, verses 21 and 22. He says, The land of darkness and the shadow of death, a land as dark as darkness itself. And again, the point in the context should not be missed. What Job is trying to stress here is the idea that there is no place hidden from God. Even everything, even the realm of the dead and the depths of the sea, all of it is naked before him. Did you see that there? Sheol is naked before him. And then he goes on to say in verse 7, he hangs the earth on nothing. Isn't that beautiful? Job, the oldest book in the Bible, understood that the earth was simply suspended in space. Job remarkably understood this. 
Now, this is in great contrast to other ancient mythologies that said that the earth was held up on the back of elephants or giant turtles or, or a fantastic giant who held the earth on his shoulders. Job knew that God hangs the earth on nothing. He says, look how great God is. And then he says this in verse 10. It's also brilliant. He says, he drew a circular horizon on the face of the waters at the boundary of light and darkness. Job also understood the principles of the curvature of the earth and of the curved nature of the horizon. This is absolutely amazing. And so he says in verse 11, the pillars of heaven tremble. And then verse 12, he stirs up the sea with his power. Job knew the mighty energy displayed in storms that stirred up the sea. And he knew that this was the power of God. By the way, if you want to just stretch your mind with how great God is, just do a little bit of research on what happens in a great storm out at the ocean. How much energy is released? I mean, we think of the epitome of energy as being a, a nuclear weapon or an atomic bomb of some kind. You know, any storm out in the ocean is the energy equivalent of hundreds, if not thousands, of atomic weapons. It's absolutely amazing the raw energy there is in a storm. And that's exactly what Job calls to mind there in verse 12. But then in verse 13, he says something, and I hope you saw it. Did you see what he said in verse 13? His hand pierced the fleeing serpent. This is another obscure reference to an ancient serpent that was defeated by God. Uh, Isaiah chapter 51 verse 9 mentions this. Psalm 89 verses 8 and 10 also speak of this idea of this serpent associated with the sea that God defeated as a demonstration of his great strength and identifies this serpent with the name Rahab. That's what it's called in Psalms. That's what it's called in Isaiah, Rahab. And you know what the name Rahab means? The proud one. It's very interesting. There are ancient rabbinic mythologies that suggest that an evil serpent was in the primeval sea resisting the creation of the world. You, you know from Genesis chapter 1 that in the beginning of God's creation, the earth was a watery globe. And the idea was, was there was some sea serpent in there trying to resist God's work of creation. And so at the beginning of God's creation, he slayed the serpent. Now, this could be an ancient mythology. But on the other hand, we know very well, don't we? that Satan is often represented as a dragon or a serpent. We also know that in the Jewish mind, the sea is thought of as a dangerous or a threatening place. Let me tell you, tell you this way. The ancient Jews did not think of a holiday at the sea. Not at all. They wanted to get away from it. Their idea was that the sea was a dangerous place to be avoided. I think... This right here may be another reference to this ancient serpent, this ancient Rahab, this ancient Leviathan. We'll run into that name later. This serpent-like manifestation of Satan, who was the original Rahab or proud one. Now, I do have to tell you this, that in the ancient times of Job, there were many popular legends about gods who combated various hostile deities in order to create the earth. And so some people think that Job is just sort of borrowing from these stories and putting them into a context with Yahweh and saying that God is greater than any of these ancient deities. That's a possibility. But there may be some truth 
to these ancient mythologies. Anyway, the point of it is clear, right? In these verses, verses 5 through 13, he's expressing how great God is, how mighty his power is. And now when we come to verse 14, he's going to talk about the place of man in light of this great power of God, where he says, Indeed, these are the mere edges of his ways. And how small a whisper we hear of him. But the thunder of his power, who can understand? You see, Job's description of the power of God in those verses that we just read in that beautiful long section, it's amazing, it's impressive. Yet Job knew that all of this description was really just describing the very edge of God's power. Now later on in the book, God is going to reveal himself to Job and he's going to explain to Job more of his ways and he's going to explain more to Job about some of these edges that Job is referring to. He's going to bring some of the thunder of his power as it says there in verse 14 to Job. And then he says here, verse 14, very clear, very wonderful, but the thunder of his power, who can understand? Again, I want to call to your mind. Job was a very godly man. He had a very close relationship with God. And I would say that Job understood a lot about God. But he understood enough about God to know that there was a lot more that he did not understand. And so he could say, the thunder of his power, who could understand? So what does he do at the end of verse 26? I don't know. He takes a breath. He takes a drink of water. He walks up a little bit and he's answering this, looking at his friends. Are you going to say anything? Every time I say something, you guys reply. Eliphaz, are you going to say anything? Bildad, are you going to say anything? Zophar, are you going to say anything? And they're all quiet. They're all tired. They're all exhausted. Go ahead, Job. If you want to keep talking, you keep talking. That's why we come to chapter 27, verse 1. Moreover, Job continued his discourse and said, As God lives who has taken away my justice and the Almighty who has made my soul bitter as long as my breath is in me and the breath of God in my nostrils, my lips will not speak wickedness, nor my tongue utter deceit. Far be it from me that I should say that you're right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. My righteousness I hold fast and I will not let it go. My heart shall not reproach me as long as I live. I love this section. Listen, throughout the book of Job, we have seen what an amazing combination of contradictions Job is. This is what I love about Job, is he's so real. And we've seen it time and time again, right? One moment, he's crying out with this incredible faith, I know that my Redeemer lives and I will be with him on that day, you know, and on and on. And then in almost the very next words, he's saying, and I wish I was dead and that God would just leave me alone. Right? He's, he's contradicting himself. On one minute, Job is saying, God, where are you? Just come visit me and answer me. And the next moment, he's saying, oh, God, please leave me alone. Stay far away from me. Listen, a man in the kind of agony that Job has been in, he's going to have his contradictions. And here we see it so beautifully, almost humorously expressed. I would almost assure you that as God listened to this from heaven, God smiled when he heard Job say this. Notice what it says here. Job continued in his discourse and said, right? He allowed his friends the opportunity to say something, but they didn't. And then now he says in verse two, this is so great. As God lives, who has taken away my justice. You see, in the previous chapter, Job praised the power of God, right? 
But he also recognized that he needed something more than just the might of God. He needed rescue from the one who made his soul bitter. And if you notice, he says this, as God lives, who has taken away my justice, and then you go down a little bit, and what does he say in verse 4? My lips will not speak wickedness. It's almost as if he says this. He almost says this. I swear to the God who has cheated me, I will be faithful to him. You just say, well, listen, Job, if you think God's cheating you, maybe you shouldn't be swearing by him. You sense the contradiction there? He's both saying, God, you're ripping me off. You're being unfair to me. But he's swearing by God at the same time. I'll read to you some words from one commentator named Smick. He says, he felt that God had denied him justice, but inconsistently still knew that God somehow was just, so he could swear by his life. This same contradiction also applies to his early, fa- earlier fantasies, when with highly emotional words he viewed God as his enemy. I think this is very wonderful here to see Job under this kind of contradiction saying, God, why do you keep doing this to me? You know, God, you're so unfair to me. God, you're so bad to me. God, won't you just hold me? You know, God, stay away from me. God, I need you. It's this whole contradiction here. And it's really beautiful. I love the power of those words as he says there in verse two, and the almighty who has made my soul bitter. That's powerful, isn't it? There's Job just explaining how he feels. God, you have made my soul bitter. As you might imagine, Charles Spurgeon, he preached a sermon on this very text. The the, the sermon was titled, A Vexed Soul Comforted. And in that sermon, he spoke to the child of God who felt that God had made their soul bitter. Let me read to you this quote from Spurgeon's sermon here. He says, Child of God, are you vexed and embittered in soul? Then bravely accept the trial as coming from your father and say, The cup which my father has given me, shall I not drink of it? Shall we receive good at the hand of God and shall we not receive evil? And Spurgeon went on to say this. Press on through the cloud which now lowers directly in your pathway. It may be with you as it was with the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration. They feared as they entered the cloud, yet in the cloud they saw their master's glory and they found it good to be there. And then he goes on to say this. And I found this very powerful from this this quote from Spurgeon. He says, If it be the Almighty who has troubled us, then surely he can also comfort us. He that is strong to sink is also strong to save. If he be Almighty to embitter, he must also be Almighty to sweeten. Oh yes, that word Almighty cuts both ways. It makes us tremble and it cuts our pride, but it also makes it hope and so it slays our despair. Isn't it beautiful? You may say tonight, you may be saying right along with Job and the Almighty who has made my soul bitter. And if that's what you're saying tonight, I just say, well, God bless you in saying that. I'm sure you have reason to feel that way. I'm not here to contradict your feeling. I'm not here to tell you, as Job's friends told Job, now you shouldn't feel that way, Job. 
Maybe the Almighty has made you feel better, but bitter, I should say. But remember this, the same Almighty who made you feel bitter, he is Almighty to make you feel better as well, to sweeten what has been bitter unto you. And in the midst of this kind of speaking, he says, as we saw before there in verse 4, Job says, my lips will not speak wickedness. In his bold and plain speaking to this point before God and his friends, one might think that Job has spoken wickedness, yet Job didn't think that he had. And he insisted that he would not. Instead, he says in verse 5, Far be it from me that I should say that you are right. When Job protested that he would not speak wickedness, he meant it especially in the context of saying that he would not agree that his friends were right in their accusations against him. And so... He goes on here, verse 7. May my enemy be like the wicked, and he who rises up against me like the unrighteous. For, for what is the hope of the hypocrite, that he may gain much if God take away his life? Will God hear his cry when trouble comes upon him? Will he delight himself in the Almighty? Will he always call on God? See, here Job in very strong terms, is asking for the same punishment that his friends think that he deserves. You see, his friends thought that Job deserved to be punished. And Job says, Lord, the same punishment that they think I deserve for being a hypocrite, I ask you to put it upon them. You see, this is very heavy, isn't it? In Israelite law, what was the penalty for a false accusation in a criminal case? The same penalty that put a, would go upon the person that you accused was supposed to be put upon you. And the same principle Job is applying to his friends. He says there in verse 8, For what is the hope of the hypocrite? You see, Job was accused of being a hypocrite by his friends and of clinging to hidden sin instead of confessing and repenting. And Job says, No, 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 I understand that the hope of the hypocrite is vain. And he insists there in verse 9, will God hear his cry? And then in verse 10, will he always call on God? You see, Job was in a very difficult situation before his friends. Job agreed that God would not hear the hypocrite, right? But Job had to admit, I don't feel like God is hearing me right now. Now look, Job could comfort himself with the understanding that even though God did not seem to be listening to Job right now, Job said, if you notice it in verse 10, Job said that the hypocrite will not always call on God. And Job said, listen, I feel like God's not answering me, but I keep calling. I feel like God's not opening the door, but I'm still knocking. And the hypocrite won't keep knocking like I am. You see, the sure sign of the hypocrite is that he will not always call on God. Oh, he will sometimes, right? The hypocrite will sometimes call on God. The hypocrite will call on God when it's convenient or when it's in front of other people or when he can make a display of his spirituality. But no, the hypocrite will not always call on God. And Job says, that's all I've been doing this whole time. Now Job is going to start to agree that God will judge the wicked. Again, agreeing with points that have already been established. Verse 11 He said, I will teach you about the hand of God. What is with the Almighty, I will not conceal. Surely all of you have seen it. Why then do you behave with complete nonsense? Do you see how frustrated Job is with the complete lack of understanding of his friends? (laughs) Can you see him shaking his finger at his friends? I will teach you about the hand of God. You guys seem to know it all. You seem to know certain principles about God and his way in the world, but you're misapplying those principles. And then he says in verse 12, why do you then behave with complete nonsense? 
You see, Job's friends claimed to know God in his ways. But when they came down to analyzing Job's situation, it was nonsense. So he continues on in verse 13. This is the portion of a wicked man with God and the heritage of oppressors received from the Almighty. If his children are multiplied, it's for the sword and his offspring shall not be satisfied with bread. Those who survive him shall be buried in death and their widows shall not weep. Though he heaps up silver like dust and piles up clothing like clay, he may pile it up, but the just will wear it and the innocent will divide the silver. He builds his house like a moth like a booth with a, which a watchman makes. The rich man will lie down, but not be gathered up. He opens his eyes and he is no more. Terrors overtake him like a flood. A tempest steals him away in the night. The east wind carries him away and he's gone. It sweeps him out of his place. It hurls against him and it does not spare. He flees desperately from its power. Men shall clap their hands at him and shall hiss him out of his place. Now in this strong section, As strongly as any of Job's friends has argued, Job argued that judgment awaits the wicked man. Now look, let's remember this whole situation. Job's friends saw his unique and profound suffering. And they said, aha, unique and profound suffering. That means that you are under the judgment of God, Job. That's why you have to repent. Job said, no, I'm not under the judgment of God. Honestly, I'm not. And when Job protested that, then his friends said, Job, you're overthrowing the moral order of the universe. You're saying that God does not judge the wicked and God does not bless the righteous. This is the equation by which we are judging you and you're trying to overthrow it. Well, Job here very rightly is saying to his friends, I understand perfectly that God judges the wicked, and let me explain to you now. And Job is agreeing with his friends that judgment awaits the wicked man, and that the wicked man will not ultimately be blessed. And this was an important argument for Job to make in front of his friends, because they accused him of overturning God's moral order in the world. And Job agreed in general with the idea that wickedness is rewarded with judgment from God. Notice what he says in verse 13. This is the portion of the wicked man with God and the heritage of the impressors received from the Almighty. God will judge the wicked man. And then he goes on and he describes in that powerful portion that I just read of all the ways that God visits destruction upon the wicked. Verse 14, if his children are multiplied, it's for the sword. Verse 20, terrors overtake him like a flood. Verse 21, the east wind carries him away. Verse 23, men shall clap their hands at him. And in this section, it's a powerful and bitter portion that God has reserved for the wicked man. Now, what's very interesting about this is it includes many aspects that applied to Job and his own crisis. Go back to that. Verse 14, If his children are multiplied, it's for the sword. Oh, he has a lot of children? Well, they're all just going to die. Isn't that what happened to Job? Verse 20, terrors overtake him like a flood. Doesn't Job describe his own situation just in those terms? Verse 21, the east wind carries him away. What was it that flattened the home of Job's children? It was a mighty wind. 
Verse 23, men shall clap their hands at him. In one place, Job talks about how men clap their hands at him and scorn him. Now, please understand, Job is not saying this as an admission of guilt. He's not admitting to his friends, and I am this wicked man. No, this is what he's saying to his friends. He says, listen, guys, I know that my situation looks like the judgment of God on the wicked, but I assure you that it is not. And now in chapter 28, Job is going to continue speaking to his friends. And Job chapter 28 is beautiful. We're going to conclude with this chapter this evening. And it is a beautiful and powerful chapter where Job is going to speak on the theme of wisdom. Again, I want you to understand just the bigger context here. Job is done debating with his friends. Now, he's not speaking so much to answer his friends as he is to unburden his soul, to sort of give some analysis in the midst of the storm. And now he's going to speak in a very poetic and a very powerful way about the nature of wisdom. And this is actually beautiful. Right here, starting at verse 1, chapter 28. Surely there is a mine for silver, and a place where gold is refined. Iron is taken from the earth, and copper is smelted from ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches every recess. For ore in the darkness and the shadow of death, he breaks open a shaft away from people in places forgotten by feet. They hang far away from men. They swing to and fro. Now, you know what Job is describing here in the first four verses? He's describing the way that men search for precious metals, how they do mining work. And Job is considering the way that men search for precious and useful metals, such as gold, silver, iron, and copper. And then he goes on and he describes here, verse 3, that they search every recess. Verse 3 again, man puts an end to darkness. So can you just picture this? It's a beautiful thing to picture in mind. There's a man searching in a cave, right? And he's swinging to and fro as he describes it there in verse 4, right? He's suspended by a rope there and he has a lantern or a candle or oil lamp in his hand and he's searching to and fro in the midst of the darkness in a very dangerous situation. The ropes might break at any minute. He'd be plunged to his death. It's frightening. It's cold. It's dark. It's scary. Why are you doing this, man? It's because I'm searching for something very valuable. There could be gold in this cave. There could be silver or a precious metal. It's powerful. It's beautiful what Job is describing here. Now going on here, verse 5. As for the earth, from it comes bread, but underneath it is turned up as by fire. Its stones are the sources of sapphires, and it contains gold dust. That path no bird knows. Nor has the falcon's eye seen it. The proud lions have not trodden it, nor has the fierce lion passed over it. He puts his hand on the flint. He overturns the mountains at the roots. He cuts out channels and the rocks, and his eye sees every precious thing. He dams up the streams from trickling. What is hidden, he brings forth to light. In other words, now what Job is trying to describe here is the way that the earth's treasure is hidden. Right? Verse 5, as for the earth, from it comes bread. Okay, we know you grow wheat and stuff on top of the ground. Okay, great. But then he says, but its stones, verse 6, are the source of sapphires. You see, on the top, you see what's on the earth. It's grain, it's bread, it's great. Okay, but he goes underneath, hidden in the earth, 
The earth is a treasure house of value and riches. For who? For those who are willing to go in there and dig after them. For those who are willing to find these things. And so he describes the man looking for things, right? Verse 9, he puts his hand on the flint. He overturns mountains. He cuts out channels in the rock. He dams upstream. Can you see the man working hard to gain what? To gain the hidden treasures of the earth. This is how hard men are willing to work to gain the hidden treasures of the earth. You might read that and say, well, who cares? It's nice to hear this wonderful lecture you're giving us, Job, on ancient mining techniques. It's wonderful. But what's the point of it? Well, Job's going to explain, starting here at verse 12. Look. But where can wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its value, nor is it found in the land of the living. The deep says it's not in me, and the sea says it's not with me. It cannot be purchased for gold, nor can silver be weighed for its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or sapphire. Neither gold nor crystal can equal it, nor can it be exchanged for the jewelry of fine gold. No mention of it shall be made of coral or quartz, for the price of wisdom is above rubies. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot be equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. Now do you see in verse 12, he starts with the point that he's been trying to get at the entire chapter. He's been building up to it, but now he says, look, men search all over the earth and under the earth in dangerous and diligent conditions, trying to find the treasures of the earth. But who is looking for wisdom in this way? Men search hard. They're willing to endure danger for the sake of the riches of this earth. But all of that is easy compared to how hard it is to find wisdom. Isn't that funny? Don't we somehow harbor it in our mind that it's really not that hard to get wisdom? You know, I'll, I'll just read my Bible more or read some good books or, or you know, it, it's really, now I don't do it, of course, but you think it's not that hard. You understand what Job's saying? How hard would it be for you to go out and find, uh, you know, a, a fortune, you know, a hundreds of thousands of dollars or euros, you know, out in silver or gold somewhere in the middle of the desert? That's hard work, isn't it? Job says, that's easy compared to finding wisdom. Where are you going to find it? Verse 14, the deep says, it's not in me. Verse 15, it can't be purchased for gold, right? The idea is of how rare wisdom is, and that makes it all the more valuable among men. Therefore, gold is worth more, excuse me, wisdom is worth more than all of those precious metals. I find this very interesting, especially because when Job wrote this, as far as we know, we're speculating just a little bit, but when Job wrote this, how many books of the Bible had been written up to that point? Zero, right? Especially in Job's time. You can see exactly why he says this, right? What did Job have to go on for revelation? Well, what God would speak to him directly, what God would speak to his conscience, and then what was out in the natural world. That's all Job had to go on. How much more difficult it was for Job than it is for us to find wisdom. Yet, for all, it is easier for us to find wisdom because of the word of God that we have in our hands that Job did not have. Wouldn't you still say that today wisdom is very rare among men? It's still true, isn't it? It shouldn't be as rare, but nevertheless it is. 
Well, going on here, verse 20. Again, beautiful poetry here. Job speaks. From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Destruction and death say, we have heard a report about it with our ears. God understand its way, and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees under the whole heavens to establish a weight for the wind and apportion the waters by measure. He, when he made a law for the rain and a path for the thunderbolt, then he saw wisdom and declared it. He prepared it. Indeed, he searched it out. And to man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to part from evil is understanding. Isn't that beautiful? Go back to verse 20. From where then does wisdom come? Job explained how difficult it was to find wisdom, right? And then he asked the logical question, well, if wisdom is so hard to find, then where can you find it? Should we just give up? Oh, it's hard to find. Forget about it. No, no, no. Job says, don't give up in the search. All the way down in verse 23, what does he say? God understands its way. God understands the way of wisdom, and he knows its place. Where are you going to find wisdom? In God. That's where you'll find it. He, he understands that this is our confidence. This is our comfort. God understands it. God is the source of wisdom. Man is not. And so man must look to God for wisdom. And how wise is God? How mighty is God in the wisdom? Look at it, verse 25. I love this. How he says, to establish a weight for the wind and apportion the waters by measure. If God can weigh the wind, he's pretty smart. If God can apportion the waters properly across the earth, he's pretty smart. And then in verse 26, he made a law for the rain and a path for the thunderbolt. If God can run the whole hydrological system of the, of the, of the earth, pretty smart. If God can make a path for the thunderbolt, he knows what he's doing. Again, the same God who masters the natural world, has the riches of wisdom at his disposal. He's demonstrated his own wisdom and power through the design of the natural world. Which brings us to verse 28, where he says so beautifully here, Job says, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding. Job concluded this great speech by coming back to the touchstone of what? Of revelation. The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. Since true wisdom comes from God, it is found in being in right relationship with God, which he calls here the fear of the Lord. And it is shown in a life that departs from evil. Isn't it beautiful here? Job understood with the later psalmist also understood in Psalm 111, verse 10, where it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's a idea also repeated in Proverbs chapter 9 and in Proverbs chapter 15. If true wisdom could simply be gained by human effort, but by human energy and human ingenuity, which by the way, you can get the precious metals of this earth that way, right? Have you ever been in some of the mines? You know, living here in this part of Germany, 
One of the really fun things that I've done is I've gone and visited one of the old mines here in the area of Iserfeld. And we had a little tour and we went into the mine shaft there and you saw how they dug through the rock. And the man who described the tour for us, he described to us how hard these men worked and how many men worked over so many decades, sometimes to Joe, just a, a meter or a yard of distance within the hard, hard rock until they could, they used all their strength all their ingenuity, all their resources, but they found it, right? They, they found the rich vein of ore and they mined it and they mined it and it was a beautiful thing. Now listen, if wisdom that was that way, if you could get wisdom just by looking for it very hard, then you could do it. But the fear of the Lord is what is essential in gaining wisdom. You see, if it comes from God's revelation, then a right relationship to him is essential to the key of wisdom. Now listen, this is what you have to come to. This is what Job's friends did not understand. They analyzed Job's situation with knowledge, but not with wisdom. They had the right ideas, but they misapplied them. They did not have the wisdom to apply them to Job correctly. And that's where Job pauses. That's where we're going to pause. We'll pick it up at chapter 29 next time in the middle of this sort of speech of Job that he concludes with. But we'll pick it up right there in the middle next time and join Job as he continues to defend himself. So let, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this little a time in the word here this evening where we see the riches of your wisdom, Lord. And, and it just convicts us, Lord, that we look uh, to so many other places for wisdom other than you. We realize, Lord, that you are the true source of wisdom. And so we understand and agree that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And to depart from evil is understanding, Lord. Help us, Lord, to live our lives with wisdom and understanding and to bring you glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.